Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 10. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. We are certainly not going to make it through all of them, as you know. I um, anticipate spending a good six, seven, eight weeks in this section of verses alone um, and really taking our time through spiritual warfare. So you're going to be familiar with these verses if you're not already. Let's start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to distinguish, extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, beyond the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak but that you also may know about my circumstances how I am doing take a kiss and believe beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that we may have, he may have comfort, he may comfort your hearts, excuse me. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What I love about this section is right in the middle of some of the thickest verses we get about spiritual warfare, it just immediately shifts back to personal things going on in Paul's life. It shows you how vulnerable he was as a man asking for prayer. And it's a reality check that not only is this the God-inspired word, the Holy Spirit giving Paul utterance, that these things were coming from a man that had his own hurts and sorrows and pains. He knew what he was talking about by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he spoke forth these things. They were, they were important to him on a level that we may not understand, we may not relate to. May we not forget what exactly Paul was doing in prison while he was, or why he was in prison while he was writing these verses. It's more than just being depressed. He writes this about the very, the very potential to change circumstances from which he was living in. Now too many, I'm going to take some time this morning, most of the time actually, and not looking at these verses, I want to lay a foundation and remind you. It's my goal over the course of the next few weeks to help us do a couple things. Number one, to see the significance of the ongoing battle around us. Number two, to help us in our battle preparations. And thirdly, to encourage us to actually get out on the front lines. You see, too many, I think, Believe the Christian walk is all about them. 
personal peace, salvation, we come to the Lord, great, I'm going to heaven. It's by grace that I've been saved. It's the gift of God. We have happiness and assurance and security. But if that's all that Christianity is, then we're missing one of the main things that God gives us to do until he should return. See, there's a great need in the church today, some, something that only warriors can do. Not just believers, not just churchgoers, church attenders. It is warriors, those that believe that there is more to salvation than just going to heaven. That they can be busy bringing heaven on earth as long as we tarry here. See, this is the grave mistake that many people make, is that you come to Jesus Christ, and it's gravy. You get to live your life the way you want. But see, Paul is reminding us that there is something far greater, far bigger going on around us, that we get to be ambassadors for Christ to bring his kingdom come. You see, a football player, most likely, I've never been one, I'm never going to be one, is not worried about mowing their lawn the day of the Super Bowl. Right? Is that, is that probably a fair speculation? Most brides, I can only vouch for my wife, I would assume this is probably safe, are probably not worried about finishing that sitcom the day of their wedding. Fireman doesn't finish his sandwich before or while there's a burning building, although I might try. Why? Because there are more urgent things, and when you get your mind focused on what is happening around you and outside of your own stomach, or some silly TV show, or even your grass that can wait till later, see, that's the attitude that we need in the kingdom of God. There should be an urgency, a sense of real urgency in the heart of every believer. That, that God's message is so crucial, we have got to get out on the streets and share it with the world that is damned to hell. Not because God is evil and mean, but because of sin and the wickedness of sin. And I think so often we fail to recognize that there is a work within us, that God desires to use us. His message is so precious, and the Holy Spirit wants us to go out on the streets and to start to do warfare for his kingdom. By show of hands, how many of you are aware that there is an ongoing battle? Most of us, right? Well, for those that are either too shy to raise your hand or don't know, we're going to change that this morning. i remind you, I'm concerned that there's a few that hear that there's a battle. They know it in the Word of God, but they have not processed that information for what it's really worth. Some of you need to be reminded that there's a battle raging on. Right now, over all the earth, there is an enemy who is scheming to kill, steal, and destroy everything that you are, everything that belongs to you, that really belongs to God, all of your family, that is his one purpose in focus. Do you believe it? Do we really believe it, though? I mean, we know it's in God's Word, but do we have that sense of urgency? Let's imagine somehow that uh, I knew your house was going to burn down today. I'm just saying... I don't know how, I'm just saying, it could be. 
And I happened to tell you last night, hey, Julie, your house is going to burn down. Well, I, maybe I shouldn't pick on you. You probably still would come to church. How many of you, if your house was, you were told your house was going to be burning down this afternoon, you'd be at home right now making arrangements? Right? Calling the power department just in case, you know, cutting off your power, making sure the fire department's there and they're going to show up on time, getting all the valuables out, moving furniture out, trying to save whatever you can, maybe hosing down the roof, doing what you can, right? And yet there's a spiritual arsonist outside these four walls that is seeking someone to devour. Meanwhile, most of us never give him any thought. Now, there's, this is a, a struggle here on one hand. I don't want to magnify Satan and what he is. We don't need to be worried about him in the sense that he's already defeated. Yet, on the other hand, we need to be aware that he is constantly seeking someone to devour. How many of us have security on our house? No one wants to admit it, right? Some level of security. Even locks count, right? A lock is a security, right? Okay? We would all raise our hand. Maybe cameras. You got some bodyguards. Some cousins, Smith and Wesson. I don't know. How about smoke alarms? Carbon monoxide detectors. Why, why do we do these things? Why do we have these things? Because we care about our stuff and our beloved people that live in our house, right? Isn't that why we have basic security? We're worried, well, not worried may not be the right word. We don't want to get robbed. We don't want our house to burn down. We don't want to die of poisoning, whatever it may be. We want to protect our stuff and our loved ones. When is the last time you checked your batteries in your spiritual alarm system? You know, sharpened your sword by the reading of the Word of God. You know, practiced extinguishing the lies with your shield of faith. You know, reminded yourself of the promises of God by putting on the helmet of salvation, you know, promises of His Word. See, the thing is, I don't believe that we are ever going to take the armor of God unless we first see the devil as a credible threat. Now, I don't particularly want to make this political, at least in part because I don't want to lose half of you for the rest of the message. And I'm not trying to be insensitive and callous. But what's happening in the news, if we could just consider for a moment what's happening in Afghanistan. I wonder if we can sort of gain some insight from this ongoing tragedy in Kabul. What is bound to happen when you underestimate your enemy? I just wonder if we take the battle for our souls as serious as the battle for our freedoms. Because as hard as this is to hear, the truth of the matter is one is far more important than the other. For in the one, there may be loss of life, but in the other, there will be loss of life eternally. That is, our children, our grandchildren. Say, oh, pastor, I'm, I'm secure in him. I know where I'm going. Great. What about your coworkers, your boss, your neighbors, your parents, your kin? What about your town, your country? Church, I confess that I failed to understand the magnitude of the battles. I admit that I'm not prepared for war like I ought to be. So right now, all around us, whether we see it or not, whether we want to believe it or not. And I fear that there are others, too, that have not taken it as seriously as they should. And I worry that the church is not prepared for battle. And I worry that there's a lot of churchgoers that are going to lose the battle. 
And I'm not talking about the war. I want to make that distinction. The war has already been done and decided. The devil has been dealt with. Jesus has bound up the strong man, Matthew 12, 29. He has already crushed the head of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord one day, but the reality of the matter is until we get to that day, Lucifer prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The war has already been decided, but until that day that Jesus returns, once and for all, there are lots of battles and skirmishes taking place. And guess who the warriors are supposed to be? The church. Let me just sort of stick here for another minute and make sure we all can identify the two different factions of the war. In the white corner, we have Jesus, Son of God. It's God in flesh, in fact. His record is a perfect 1-0. He's never lost. He came down to earth, he died, he rose again and defeated the devil. He comes in grace and truth. His desire is that salvation would be for all, that all would believe in him. He is not only all-powerful, he is not only all-knowing, but he is, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere. He has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's part of the Great Commission, right? Go therefore. That was after his resurrection. His nicknames include King of Kings, the Bread of Life, the Bright and Morning Star. In the red corner, we have Lucifer, a powerful created being. Listen, he had to be created. He has a victory in the Garden of Eden. He also has one loss. He leads a gang of henchmen that have followed him since the, his coup at Deptop. It is at least one-third, according to the Old Testament, if you believe those are about, written about him, one-third of God's angels followed him around. He's a snake. He's the serpent of old. He's the dragon. He's known as the father of lies. He is both strong and powerful. His sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Other nicknames include the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the god of this world. Now, these are the two participants. How is it that we can have Jesus, who says that he has all authority in both heaven and earth, and yet we also have at the same time a god of this earth? What's happening here? Well, quick history lesson, and I call it history because this is a history book. God told Adam in the garden, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to subdue the earth and all that is in with, within it. Remember that verse? This is a command of God. In fact, God instructs dominion to be underneath mankind. That is delegated authority. Follow along. Man, in turn, gave at least some of his authority to the devil. This is what I believe. This is the most theologically sound argument I can make. I can't point to a verse that explicitly says, and Adam gave authority to the serpent. That's not how it works. But if you look at the scripture from cover to cover, this appears to be what happens in how Satan became the prince of the power of air. Okay? God gave told Adam to subdue the earth. He delegated his authority to man. Man turned around and gave it to the serpent in the garden when he ate of the fruit. 
In other words, he submitted himself or usurped God's authority and command in his life and surrendered to what the devil said and put his word above God's. Don't eat from that tree, Adam. What did he do? He disobeyed. And so he followed after and put himself underneath the rule of the devil. Now this points back to all those names of Satan, as I said, the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Now I believe Satan has limited power. It's restrained power and controlled. God Almighty is sovereign. He sits on the throne. He can do whatever he wants. You see this even outlined in Job, which is most likely the oldest book in the Bible. What does Satan have to do? He went to God to ask for permission to persecute Job, right? You remember that? This is all, we're just trying to make sense of authority and how he got it. Luke chapter 4. You remember Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness? Let me go find the verse here. And the first, the temptation that Satan tempted him in was giving him all the kingdoms of the earth, right? Let me find the verse. He led him up, this is Jesus, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. The devil said, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. Now, there's two possibilities. We know he's a father of lie, and he could have just lied and made that up. He didn't nearly have any dominion over that. But I do believe if you also look forward to Jesus on the cross, when Judas comes to betray him with a kiss, He's praying and he says, this hour of darkness is yours. You remember that? In Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 48. So Jesus himself acknowledged that Satan, he said, this next hour, this 60 minutes is yours. Go ahead and do what you want. Because Jesus knew what was coming on the other side of that hour. Okay? So he let Satan do what he wanted through his little possessed and controlled Judas the betrayer. Now, Jesus took back that authority through his death and resurrection. That's the importance of the cross. This is why we honor and celebrate the Resurrection Sunday. Jesus came back victorious. Grave, where is thy sting? Death, where is thy victory? Colossians chapter 2, 15, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He triumphed over them and made a public display. He, in other words, in all of the heavenly places, he put Satan up on display and made a fool of him and said, look what you've done. You're no good. You must bow to, my, to me, to my name. Why? Because Satan was the evil one who had puffed himself up to that point where he thought he could be like God and God decided to make clear once and for all to not only Lucifer, but all of his demons that had believed for a moment they could actually be as good as God. Hey, newsflash, Satan. You're created. Remember that? Remember that I always was? That I am that I am? Well, I made you, knowing full well what you were going to do. So, so Jesus made a display of him, put him up publicly as a trophy, so to speak, a reminder to everyone else. Now, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, and this is a really important verse for the context of how we get to Ephesians 6. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same. He wrapped himself in flesh that through death, 
So he had to come in flesh or his sacrifice would not have counted. That through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. He might render powerless Satan who had the power of death. Who held the power of death all those years? According to that verse, Lucifer did. He holds the power of death. Imagine, just, just let that sink in. That he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We sing that song, right? I'm no longer a slave to fear. Well, it's really scriptural. It's talking not just about fear, but also the death. And that's really the slavery of the fear is related to our eternal death. But Jesus came to bring life and set the captives free. We read about that in Ephesians a couple chapters ago, right? Now, if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, for those that are in Ephesians, I want you to see a couple verses here. We've talked about these. I don't want to spend too much time on them. You can go back a year and listen to them if you want. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and the inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, a little bit above, far above, all rule and authority and power and dominion. Just in case you wanted to make the distinction between authority and power, which that's a whole message in itself, it's all covered in this verse. Above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one Christ right now is king of this earth. God the Father gave to Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth after he ascended. Christ sat at the right hand of God where he was crowned the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's above everything. He's above every president that will ever be. He's above every king on this earth. He's above Satan. So if that's true, then how do we fit into all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's keep reading. 22 of chapter 1. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that's Jesus, as head over all things to the church, who is, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I mentioned this a long time ago when we were looking at these verses. Christ Jesus sits in the right hand of the Father, basking in all of his glory and all of the authority in which he has. But he gave to the church to be transmitters, if you will, delegates of his kingdom authority to bind up the strong men on this earth until he should come back. That heaven would be like earth. His will be done, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we are to pray. That was the model prayer. Jesus teaches us how to pray. Oh, well, why don't you pray this? Why don't you pray that my kingdom would be realized on earth all around you? That we wouldn't be a church that contains itself to the four walls 
and is afraid of going out because of persecution or mocking. But we would walk out in the full power of the Holy Spirit. But the darkness would flee. And we read a verse this morning about the life swallowing up death in Sunday school. I was just thinking about this. We often have this picture in our mind through all of, you know, Hollywood and, and darkness. We have these, you know, dark holes that can swallow light up. And, you know, the dark always has this kind of elusive power that seems cool, right? You look at Star Wars and you say, oh, that dark side's pretty powerful. And it's always by, you know, some accident that the, the good guys win, right? They either get lucky or, or, you know, something really happens, the dark side makes a mistake, but that's not how it is scripturally. He's saying life actually swallows up death. God is so much more vastly powerful than Lucifer. Eternal life is stronger than death. In, in fact, light, I'll remind you, dispels the darkness. Darkness will never swallow up the light. And so we have this obligation as ambassadors of Christ to carry about that light. Let your light, little shine, your light shine, right? I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. So how do we fit in this war? Well, we, the church, are to advance the invisible kingdom of God, even though not everyone acknowledges it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, meaning there is still some things left to be subjected. He sits at the right hand of God in all his authority, but we are to literally take back the strongholds and go into the promised land and dispel those that do not bow at the name of God. That's the picture. We're going to come back to it. Now let's put this together. As members of the body of Christ, we have been delegated to use his authority on earth to see that God's will would be carried out and we must therefore exercise that authority. The problem is when the church of Jesus Christ fails to exercise our God-given authority, Satan walks around freely doing as he wills. Jesus could absolutely bind him up immediately like that. We could be taken up and it would be gone, but that's not how it's prophesied. We have a purpose. See, a lot of people think, oh, well, church is Sunday mornings, right? And we've been teaching a long time about this. Well, church is a whole lot more than just Sunday mornings. We are the church. The, the power of God lives inside. So every time we come together where two or three are gathered in his name, we form this delegation for the kingdom of God. We actually come together and get to bind up the things that have already been bound in heaven and loose the things that have already been loosed in heaven. We come together. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the what? The church, the assembly. That's right, Kathy. So when we come together and we're, we're praying about anything under heaven and on earth, Curtis and I get together as two of us. You know, Wednesday nights we pray. It, was, it literally was just Rachel Myers and I the other night. We prayed. It's a wonderful time. You know what? We were praying together, and as we agree, we're actually binding up and doing spiritual warfare together. That's what the power of the church is. And yet a lot of people think it's just, oh, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to get filled up, I'm going to get encouraged, we're going to sing some good songs, my kids are going to come home with a paper, they're going to be excited, they're going to be taught the Word of God, and, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Do we still say that? 
I don't think we still say that, do we? <laughs> we probably never said that. Okay, thanks, Sharon. I'm approved. There is a whole lot more to the church. Church. We have a God-given responsibility Let me not fail to mention that the unsaved are already under the dominion of the enemy. John chapter 8, 44, 1 John 5, 19. And so if we aren't using the authority of Christ to push back the influence of the evil one, let me ask you, what's going to happen in the New River Valley? What's going to happen if we don't bind up the strongmen over our cities? What's going to happen to our laws? It's okay if I just preach a little this morning? If we don't dispute worldly ideologies, what's going to happen to our colleges? What's going to happen to our school system and in turn to our children and our grandchildren? If we don't start to to get together and pray a hedge of protection around our children, what's going to happen to them in 10, 20 years? If we don't permeate the love of Christ everywhere we go, what's going to start happening on our streets? Do you see that there's something much greater than just meeting together on Sundays? We have not only the opportunity to fix the earth around us, we have the responsibility, rather the obligation to do it, and yet most of us never give it a second thought. Let me go to church. I'm going to get filled up. Let me say this a different way. The devil is coming for your children. He's coming for your grandchildren. He's coming for your school system. He's coming for your workplace. He's coming for your favorite restaurant. He's coming, that's right, even for your grocery store. He wants to get involved with every TV show and every movie that you would watch. He wants to infiltrate your leaders. He wants to get into your books that you read. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your church. He wants to destroy your pastors. He's coming to kill, steal, and destroy. It's time that we would get a little bit urgent. Let's look to Ephesians chapter 6. Who is going to stop the devil? Verse 10. Finally. This word is coming at the end of Paul's letter. For those that are visiting with us, in case you're not familiar with the epistle of Ephesians, I'm going to give you a rundown of it. One minute. You're thinking, why couldn't you just give us the one minute version a year ago, right? (laughs) It's not how it works. Paul has carefully established our place in Christ Jesus, and he's written the basics of the Christian walk. This last section is still dealing with the walk of the Christian. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, okay? Here's Ephesians in a nutshell. In light of all that God has done for you, in light of the glorious standing you have as a child of God, in light of his great plan of the ages that God has made you a part of, in light of the plan for Christian maturity and growth he gives to you, in light of the conduct God calls 
every believer to live, in light of the filling of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, in light of all this, there is a battle which every believer must fight. Finally. This word is a pivot to getting our heads wrapped around why he was spending five and a half chapters talking about all the riches and the glories that we have in Christ Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, in all the ways that we are to walk the right way. Now that you've got all that in place, you can begin to put on the armor of God. See, the first requirement for battle says, finally be strong in the Lord. Before a soldier is even given a gun or shown how to fire a rocket, he goes through basic training. One great purpose for basic training is to build up the recruit's physical strength. It's as if the army might say something like, soldier, we're going to give you the best weapons, we're going to give you the best training, the armor possible, but first we have to make sure that you can even pick up the things, that you're strong enough, that you can use what we're going to give you. First, or Second Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy 2 verse 1 says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Haggai 2.4, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen, it's not your power. It's not your might. It's not your strength. It's not your authority. It's his. Be strong, in the Lord. We must be in Him if we are going to fight the battle. This is pointing to things that we cannot perform and do on our own strength. We have no real might or power of our own. If we don't let the strength of Almighty God flow through our veins, then we are going to be useless on the battlefield. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The strength which God supplies. Your strength does not come from you. You can't muster it up. You must rely on God to do the work through us, through you. Now, I know this is going to go against your ego, but I just want to make very clear that you can do nothing of yourselves. Nothing that is worthwhile in the kingdom of God, that is. In fact, if you've been doing anything for God in your own strength and might, you are wasting your time. The Lord must build a church or else we labor in vain. We can do nothing for the kingdom by our own strength. We must be strengthened in him. First, for Philippians 4.13 says, I can do some things, most things. I can do all things through Christ who, who gives you strength? Your wife, your husband, your kids. 
Christ does. It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ whereby we have strength and power and might, even everlasting strength, to enable us to perform the duties and to fight against the enemy, Satan. We are weak and yet he is strong. We could go on and on quoting scriptures about this, but we'll move on. We must strengthen ourselves in meditation and in prayer, even in fasting. We are then maybe enabled to pick up the armor of God. And it's like this, this passage is telling us, this, listen, this armor is going to be heavy. It's going to be exhausting, right? But you've you got to get yourself right with the Lord before you're even going to put it on. It's going to wear you out. Where else do we hear that? Be strong and courageous. Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Four times in the one chapter, in Joshua chapter 1, God is speaking to Joshua and encouraging him as he's taking over the people Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, right? And we also see the account in Deuteronomy. We also see it in 1 Chronicles. It's like God was trying to tell us something, right? Be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Hey, Joshua, I want you to be strong and courageous. Joshua, please be strong and courageous. There's going to be a, a, a hard fight ahead of you. It's going to be really difficult, too difficult on your own, Joshua. If you do not utilize the provisions that I have secured and made for you, if you go into battle in your own strength, think AI, right? You're going to fail. If you don't use my strength and seek my wisdom... If you don't follow after my ways, if you don't allow me to work through you and fight for you, it's going to be too hard. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to hear the people complaining all the time, right? Drove Moses mad. Beating the rocks with sticks and things like that. You have your spiritual ears on? We're talking about pushing back the darkness. Kathy, if you try to push back the kingdom of darkness without being strong and courageous, Curtis, if you do it in your own strength, you're going to fail. Less. You've got to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. See, conquering a land full of giants and dark forces like we have around us, this is the New River Valley. That the New River Valley would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Him. That's our little purpose for the church. That the New River Valley would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Him. Do you know there's going to be obstacles we come up against? They might be in the form of man, woman. It might be in the form of laws. It might be in the form of complaining, might be in the form of disgruntled former members or even uprisings from within. It might be in the form of our school systems. It might be in the form against literal Satan worshipers. And, you know, we, there's a palm reader who used to be on Main Street, I think, got kicked out, right? Well, left, went out of business. <laughs> Are they still there? No, oh, we see we got some binding to do. There are, there are things that we as a church need to bind up, but we need to recognize that the enemy 
is a real threat to not just your time here Sundays. Oh, well, you know, if he has his way, we're not going to be able to meet together. No, he's going after your kids. There's no junior varsity devil. You know, you get to 18 and he's, you get the real one, right? You're just prepping up for the attack of the enemy. Nope, he's going after the little ones. You see it in the school system, don't you now? How young is it? How young are they being plagued with the ideologies of the world? Three, four years old? Before you can even put on the armor of God, we must be supernaturally strengthened in Him. You're not going to be able to hold up the armor of God unless you firstly walk in God's strength. The battle ahead is going to be tough. It's going to be demanding physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We must not rely on our own abilities. See, for when we fight spiritual battles, we must, must be supernaturally strengthened. When we fight spiritual battles, the first thing we learn from this morning is that we need supernatural strength. 